0: The reading for today is Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him called to him out of the mountain, saying, This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Morning Redemption. How y'all doing? All right. So uh, I'm a native of Phoenix. I've lived other places uh, in my life, but uh, made my way back here. But as a native of Phoenix, one of the things I know about Phoenix is uh, for such a large city, it's really a small town in so many ways. Um, I first met Mark Tullis, who is the development officer for um phoenix rescue mission when i was 10 years old we used to play water basketball together and i have to let me just tell you something about mark mark had this incredibly sweet bank shot Do you remember that you would never miss you never missed and you remember we got together one day and decided to make a rule that he could not shoot the ball if it was a bank shot it was he wasn't allowed to score points if it was a bank shot because we were so angry that you never missed that shot remember that? Okay, I do. (laughs) Mark's older, and he's struggling with some of it. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so uh, it's so funny because, um, you know, I hadn't seen him since I was a kid, and then my first Sunday here as the pastor, uh, nearly eight years ago, I walked in, and and, uh, uh, Zach is playing the electric guitar like he is today, the guy with the big arms, and uh, I went over, and I kind of introduced myself, and he said his name was Zach Tullis, and I said, oh, you are you related in any way to Mark Tullis? And he said, yeah, he's my father. In fact, he attends church here. So we've been reunited for the last eight years. And, and isn't it interesting that we're both in ministry? Neither of us were interested in the least when we were kids in God. But now we're both in ministry. So amazing thing. Anyway, uh, let me pray. We got a lot of work to, to do this morning, and we'll get into it. Lord God, we thank you for uh, your word and its truth. And I thank you for uh, the Phoenix Rescue Mission and what they're doing. I just pray you'll bless them. Man, I thank you for the book of Exodus and uh, what it tells us and how it expands our understanding of who Jesus is, who you are, uh, our, our understanding of what's going on in the New Testament, and I know it can be challenging at times, as it is today, and so I just pray that uh, you would open up our hearts and our minds, and again, um, you have your messengers of your word Uh, But it's my prayer that uh, it would be your word that is heard today and that you'd move me, the messenger, out of the way so that the word of God would be applied by the spirit of God to the hearts of the people of God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have three chapters today and they're not easy uh, chapters and some things are going to get a real flyover. uh, And I'm sorry if the things that get a flyover are the things that you really wanted me to go deep on, but we are going to go deep on some other parts and some of them are going to be really challenging. Uh, tough time in some respects today, but it's important that we do that. And at Redemption Church, uh, one of the things that we do is is not shy away from the the tough texts that have some tension uh, in them. So I'm going to do my best. I've been preparing for a long time to be able to handle those. Uh, but one thing I want you to think about as we, as we look at these um, three chapters today, uh, this question has kind of been burning in my mind lately. You heard me make the remark last week as well about whether or not we're playing or serious. Um, Do you ever get the sense in the book of Exodus, or really in any other part of the Bible, do you ever get the sense that our relationship with God is supposed to be casual? And the answer, that's a rhetorical question, the answer would be no. We're supposed to be serious about this because God is very serious, and, and you see that throughout the book of Exodus. One of the things that we do get to today in chapter 20, we're looking at 19, 20, and 21. One of the things that we do get to today uh, are the Ten Commandments, and we are going to get there. Uh, But first, just a little bit on chapter 19. Talk about flyover. Rachel read the first six verses. Uh, I could do an entire message on the first six verses of chapter 19, uh, let alone all the rest of chapter 19, which could take another couple of Uh, messages to get through but I want to just mention what chapter 19 is doing for us as we move forward Uh, in chapter 19 the Lord is proclaiming to his people after all that they've been through that he is now going to come to them and present to them through Moses but also he's there he's going to present his will his covenant and his expectations of his people the nerve of God to have expectations for his people but he's going to present all of that and so he says, what you need to do as my people to get ready for this, you need to prepare. You should be preparing, and you should also come in reverence. Uh, it, it would be a similar call to, to us on uh, Saturday nights or Sundays or whenever it is that you attend church, that, that before coming to church, at some, in some respect, there should be some measure of preparation. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's just thinking about um, what you might be receiving today in the form of prayers or worship music or the message or communion or whatever it is, but you should be thinking about that. And I know in a congregation like ours, we're demographically, we have a ton of young families and, and, and there's lots of little kids. I know it's really hard to prepare in a context like that, but um, God does call us to do our best to prepare, to at least be mindful of what is about to happen and so he does it here as well and he says on in verse 4, I just found this fascinating, he said you know I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt miraculously and then he speaks metaphorically, he did it because I bore you on eagle's wings. Why would he say that? I think there's something deeper than just the the beautiful rhetoric that he might uh, use. Remember Egypt has many gods that had different purposes And in Egypt, there was actually a vulture goddess, a vulture goddess named Nekbet, whose job it was to protect Pharaoh. That's what that god, that specific god, that god in the pantheon was supposed to do. So there's a lot of talk, and I believe this is probably true, that God uses this eagle's wings language to, again, remind everybody that he is the one true God. That, that, in fact, this vulture goddess had no power at all to be able to protect Pharaoh. And that there are no other gods, that he is, he is the one true God. And that leads us perfectly into the very first commandment. So, in chapter 20, we get the commandments. And starting in the first three verses, we look at the first. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods Before me. Like I said, Egypt was a nation that had this pantheon of God, this divine assembly of gods, and you would go to these particular gods for your particular needs. And God is saying here, right out of the gate, you will have no other gods before me. And I know the language there sounds like it could be interpreted this way, and in fact, many people do interpret it this way that God was okay that there were other gods. He was just saying, you need to make sure you prioritize me as. Number one God. And that's not what the language is saying. The language is saying this. You will have no other gods before my presence, in my presence. There will be absolutely no other gods. There is no pantheon. No other gods before me, meaning there aren't any other gods. No other gods in my presence. I am the one and only God. No others are allowed, period. So Commandment number one calls us today to answer this question. What are we worshiping instead of or even alongside the one true God? Jesus. We have to wrestle with that every day because we are tempted by these false gods every single day. Second commandment in verses four through six. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I the Lord. I am the Lord your God, and I am an, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep, love and keep, love me and keep my commandments. That word "jealous" is is an interesting word. Uh, most of us in our culture think that the word "jealous" is a pejorative and a negative word that you never want to have a jealous. Um, or a jealous spouse, that jealousy is is bad. So why would God say that I'm a jealous God? Here's why. His jealousy is different than the kind of jealousy that we engage in. Uh, If I'm jealous uh, about Jackie, the reason I'm jealous is because I don't want her to be with anybody else because that would be better for me. God is saying, I don't want you to be with anybody else, with any other God, because it'll be better for you. His jealousy is focused in the benefit of his people, not himself. Our jealousy is always focused in our own personal benefit. That's why our jealousy is not so good. His jealousy is perfect and holy. And so the second commandment is worshiping that which has been created rather than the creator. This commandment is not a restriction on art or on the expression of art. We need to understand that. Some people have tried to interpret it that way, and that's, and that's wrong. But rather, it's a commandment that is concerned with the cultural, the common cultural practice by all cultures, past and present, to create things to be worshipped rather than God himself, and to believe that somehow God is only present when we create an image of him and, and put that image in our space. As if we somehow are able to control God's movement and presence, which is just ridiculous. Furthermore, when we attempt to create images that represent God, it almost always distorts his nature, his true nature in some way. When we get to chapter 32, we're gonna see the story of the golden calf. And that's a great example of how that distorted the true nature of God. He's not a calf, he's not a bull. And that distorted his true nature, and it's one of the reasons that it was such a problem. Verse seven is command. Commandment number three, you shall not take the Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. At its heart, this commandment, which is to honor the name of God, this third commandment is prohibiting any potential misuse of God's name, especially in the realms of, here you go, it's not just you can't cuss, okay? That's not it. It's more comprehensive that, than that. We can't misuse God's name when we want to curse others or curse others, uh, cr- curse God. We cannot misuse God's name when we try to make a lie sound like the truth. I'm glad nobody in here has ever tried to do that. Um, we cannot misuse God's name when we try to blame shift our sin, which again, I'm sure nobody in this room has ever tried to do that is either. Uh, We should not misuse God's name when we're using supposedly magical incantations or spells, if anybody happens to be involved in that. Uh, That seriously, I doubt many of us are involved in, but people do that. We should not use God's name in the midst of our anger at coaches and referees and other parents when your child is playing in a competitive sports league and things are not going quite your way. shouldn't do that. And then verses 8 through 11, commandment number four. Some of you are like, wow, you really are going through these fasts. You realize that some churches do a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments. So, yeah, we're going to go a little bit fast, all right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. That pretty much covers everyone and everything. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And you should make the Sabbath holy and keep it as well. So the command uh, number four is about the Sabbath. Uh, It's interesting, in researching this, I didn't know this, Uh, prior to this commandment, the idea or the use of a seven-day week was actually pretty uncommon. You just didn't keep track of time that way prior uh, to this. And for a long time, the seven-day week was actually unique to Israel. And yes, this commandment is about rest. That's important. But even more, it's about knowing who God is and showing him reverence and honor. The, the notion of seven days and a seventh day is to point to God as creator, as Sovereign and the one who properly orders things if we're looking for wisdom order and purpose We look to God because everything else is disordered by sin And for a command of God that is so easily flouted by his people, especially today It is interesting that God talks so much about it here and by the way in the rest of the Old Testament We've already seen him talking about the Sabbath. He hasn't talked about uh, murder yet or stealing we, we've seen him already talk about the Sabbath, and, and in the uh, chapters that are coming, he keeps coming back to the Sabbath. This must be really important uh, to him, and so it should be important to us as well. Verse 12 would be commandment number five. Honor your father and your mother that your days be, may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So honor your parents. Uh, We were going to bring the entire children's and student ministry in here for just this one verse and then let them go to sort of curry favor with some of you, but we decided that would be too much trouble. You can do it at home, okay? Um, you You know what this commandment is primarily about? In the ancient world, the only institution of support and help for the elderly was the family. This commandment, is about how the family is supposed to be our Social Security and our assisted living home. Now, this does not preclude other types of honor for our parents, such as listening to them and showing them respect and deference and occasionally letting them have have control of the TV remote. But this command is primarily about elderly support. One other thing we should mention, showing honor to your parents doesn't mean that you're always going to agree with them and you don't have to always agree with them. Some of you are like okay good I'm glad he said that but it does mean that when we do disagree with them we're to do it with love and respect and it means that most of the time what we're going to do is we're going to set aside our rights as Jesus did and we're going to do what we can to serve them. Uh, Verses 13 through 16 give us the next four commandments in rapid fire fashion. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All four of these commandments, six through nine, deal with actions against others. The first three, seven through, uh, I mean six through eight, uh, those deal with physical offenses against others, and the last one, commandment number nine, actually Uh, deals with verbal offenses against other, verbal actions. Uh, It's interesting that the great reformer Martin Luther wrote about uh, the commandments, and he said commandments numbers 1 through 4 are about God and point us to God, and commandments 5 through 10 are about others and point us to righteous living with others. So you could sum up the Ten Commandments this way. Love God and love others. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anybody in here? Okay? So you know where that came from. So command number six is the commandment against murder. And the, the English standard version, the one that we use, gets the meaning of this word correct. There's more than one ancient Hebrew word for the word killing. And this one does mean murder. It's not a commandment against killing but against murder. Otherwise, what do we do with verses 12, 14, and 16 in the next chapter? Um, because there are calls for it there. Uh, the command has often been misused. This particular command has often been misused in arguing against capital punishment, self-defense, and war. Having said that, let me just say, there are, I believe, good arguments against capital punishment and against war. They're just not contained in Exodus. If, if you want to have that argument, please go somewhere else for uh, your, your citations, okay? It's not in Exodus. It's interesting, and, and I, I fully admit there are good arguments Uh, against these things. And by the way, can I just also say this? Lots of disclaimers today. I hope you keep track of them and write them down. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean I agree with those arguments. I'm just saying that as I analyze it, there seems to be great legitimacy on both sides of those issues. And that's all I'm going to say about it now. If you need to know more, it'll cost you a latte, okay? And you need to actually make an appointment for that. But um, it's interesting because just last night, um, four of our musicians, actually one of them's running sound today, um, and three that are up here, and myself, we were invited down to the south unit at Florence Prison uh, to do a worship service in their church, and it was, it was a great great experience, wonderful time. Um, it was interesting, though. We all, uh, we all borrowed Allison's uh, Suburban and went down together because we had equipment and five people, and, and on the way back, not because they knew that we were going to be in Exodus 20 today, But the subject of capital punishment came up. And what do you think? And what are the arguments for and against? And we had this really interesting, lively, and and respectful uh, debate and conversation about it. That There are legitimate sides to both of these. But this command here in Exodus in and of itself is a command against murder, against the the unjustified taking of somebody else's um, life. Then commandment number seven, adultery. Adultery. you know what adultery is. I'm going to speak about it in sort of a tangential way but, um, in, in a second. But the problem with adultery, and, and again, here we are, we're moving into sensitive area because I know that in a room this size filled with this, this many people, there are going to be people who have had this invade their lives and their intimate relationships, and that's really, really hard. The problem, the reason that it's really, really hard is that adultery is a breach of trust, and a breach of intimacy. Adultery slays vulnerability, innocence, and hope. And that's not good. That's not helpful. But this is what's fascinating to me. Um, I have found just it's remarkable to me. Uh, There is so much talk today now about how healthy open marriages are. Do you all know what open marriages are? okay? well, you're about to learn if you haven't heard this. okay? So we have psychologists, psychiatrists, and, quote, marriage experts now, writing essays, writing books, giving TED Talks, talking about, here you go, an open marriage is one where you are not only allowed, but you are encouraged to have as many sexual partners as you want in, of any and all genders outside of your spouse, and both spouses not only agree to it, but they celebrate it. This is the best possible lifestyle that we could have, okay? That's what an open marriage is, and these psychologists, psychiatrists, and marriage experts are are saying, yes, we have finally progressed in our culture to a place where we can openly embrace what is good, and they call this good. My response is fairly cynical. Yeah, sure, That's, that's really healthy, and that would never harm my relationship with Jackie, never at all. I have actually heard and read, like when somebody gives a response, something similar to that, somebody pushes back and says, that's just insane. I mean, people are going to get hurt in the midst of that. Here's their argument. Well, you just haven't matured yet. You're not sophisticated enough to understand how good this is. So it's a maturity and a sophistication issue. If that's the case, I'm a three-year-old man. I'm telling you. I mean... Uh, the, 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 fact, the fact that we, we even have to come up with some sort of an argument against this is just mind boggling. People get hurt in the midst of this. It doesn't turn out well. Here you go. You understand that in the Old Testament, m- marriage also is a picture of God's relationship with his people. And how often in the Old Testament does he say, You are committing adultery against me? That's a problem. So it would be akin, an open marriage for God would be akin to to God saying to his people, go, go, and be blessed. Chase and worship other gods. I'm fine with that. In fact, it'll somehow strengthen your relationship with me. It's just goofiness. And we certainly don't have time to go into all of the documented physical and emotional problems that this kind of openness generates. It does. It's just that a lot of that research doesn't get the play that some of this other stuff does, but it's there, and it's good research. It's peer-reviewed research that says this is a problem, but it's also a problem because God says it's a problem from the very beginning, but humans be humans, and we're always going to find a way, try to find a way around the system and get what it is that we desire and we think will be good for us. This is not good for us. Commandment number eight, no stealing. Uh, Doesn't doesn't this command, if you think about it, presuppose the right of human beings to personally own things and to own and possess private property? And the answer is, of course. There is no lucid biblical argument for the non-ownership, non-personal ownership of of property. Paul even says in Ephesians chapter 4, let the thief no longer steal But let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. But that sharing is not under compulsion. It's because of his relationship or her relationship with God that out of compassion and empathy then compels you to share and to be generous. Generosity out of compulsion is not generosity and it is also not indicative of a relationship with God generosity that is out of compassion and empathy is indicative of the fact that you have a relationship with your creator and you're honoring that by being being generous to other image bearers of his. But it's not compulsory. God has enough confidence in the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is going to move us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Okay, Commandment number nine, bearing false witness. The rest of the Bible is very clear about lying in general as a sin. This command is more specifically about false accusations and false testimony in courtrooms. And again, I'm not unsympathetic toward offenses and crime, but isn't it amazing how many stories in recent memory uh, 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 have, have come, out, come about that are about blatantly false executions? I mean, just made up out of completely whole cloth. God says this is wrong. God says that when you, when you create a false accusation or lie against somebody else in a situation like that, you are, you are creating an offense against an image bearer of mine, and I have a problem with that. And then verse 17 is commandment number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here's how we summarize this commandment. You do not, do not desire things that are not yours, you cannot have, and you shouldn't leave alone. Okay, that kind of covers everything, I think, there. But what's interesting is this, this commandment is about our thought life. It's about the way we think about things. It's about all of our internal motivations to to desire all those things that we are actually prohibited from having because it's not ours in our, in the first place. It's about how this motivation also to have everything that we can't then pushes us to do often horrible things to others for the sole purpose of our own selfish gratification and pride. And then the irony is that whenever we obtain those things, they never fulfill us the way we thought that they would fulfill us. That's too bad. It's also about how coveting is so damaging to our heart When we covet, we rob ourselves of joy and gratitude. And that lack of joy and gratitude then leads us to becoming the very worst versions of ourselves. And finally, this commandment calls on us to never live an unexamined life. We should be constantly examining ourselves, practicing self-awareness, being honest with ourselves. So there are the Ten Commandments. I know that was a flyby. We could spend hours on them, but that's a really good start. And then what happens in the wake of this presentation? Here it is, verses 18 through 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off, I would too, and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So what happens in the wake of this is true reverence and awe by God's people. And they determine that they're going to follow these commandments. Now, that doesn't last very long, and we'll get to that. But right there, in that moment, just like you and I, we're going to do it. We're going to follow these commandments. Chapter 20 then ends with God giving Moses some instructions about altars, and we're going to get to more of that in the rest of Exodus, so we'll leave it there and move on to chapter 21. There are two big things in chapter 21 that we need to cover, both of them extraordinarily touchy. And I've been praying now literally for weeks that I would handle this this well. And we're going to get at both of them to some degree. And if you've read chapter 21, at times it seems a bit random, and it does deal with some things that I think many of us would find quite offensive, especially today, and especially if you're not aware somehow of their context, and also how we might apply these things to our uh, context. So the first 21 verses are going to be encountering the first challenging part. The first 21 verses are primarily laying down laws about slavery, Now, doesn't it seem ironic or odd or weird that after God rescues his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt, he would now lay down laws about how to do slavery among his own people? Isn't that strange? Doesn't that strike you as as odd? Is God pro-slavery? Not as we understand slavery. Now, now please, again, understand, I started the Exodus Uh, the exodus series with a comment about this and and it needs to be repeated I, i have not experienced my family has not experienced firsthand the evils and the oppression of slavery as we know it in the united states so i am not speaking experientially here i am speaking from what i've researched i'm speaking academically i'm speaking based on on just trusting what others who are scholars in this area, have been able to tell me. So I get that. I understand that I'm walking into an area where even I might be forbidden by some. But there's a historical context that we need to be able to understand here. And that's my disclaimer on that one. I'll give you a disclaimer on the second one when we get to it as well. So here you go. A couple things. First of all, unlike the slavery that we are mostly familiar with, Slavery, in this particular historical and sociological context, was often a measured choice by the one who is indentured. A measured choice, a free, measured choice by the one who is going to become the slave. It was part of their economic system. You would sell yourself in order to gain employment. It was contractual, and there were often limits as to how long somebody could actually be in one of these contracts. And there were rules about how to treat your bond servants, your slaves, your employees. It, these contracts are kind of similar to employment contracts that we have today. Very similar. Okay? See, this is not one human stealing another. This is not a nation capturing or oppressing other, another people group. It's just part of their... Flawed, to be sure, but part of their economic system. In fact, verse 16 in chapter 21 specifically prohibits that kind of slavery, and God calls for a death sentence for anyone who would practice it in verse 16. This is about the accepted, everyone participates willingly, economic system of their day. That was the first way it was used. Here's the second. It was also part of their economic system as a way to work off debt. If somebody owed a debt to somebody that they could not pay back, they could become that person's servant until the debt was paid. And in fact, this was the most common reason that somebody would be, become a slave in that context. I want you to consider this. Think about this. Do, are any of you are any of you carrying any debt whatsoever? Any debt? Anybody? Anybody carrying debt? OK, mortgage. Car payment, student loans, credit card debt, consumer debt, okay? All of us. All of us, okay? Now, now here you go. This is part of our economic system. Who in Phoenix legitimately, unless you're from California, who in Phoenix can buy a house without a mortgage, okay? Right? Unless you sell in California and buy here, okay? We need the mortgages. I would argue that in Phoenix, if you're living in Phoenix and you have any sort of life at all, you need a car, and you need a good car, and it's probably going to be a car that you're going to have to make payments on. That's perfectly legitimate. I get that. That's just the way our economic system works and the realities of these lives. But do you also understand that you are now a slave? I'm a slave? Yeah, we're slaves. Oh, come on. That's different, Frank. That's completely different. Oh, oh, really? Okay, so here you go. I just challenge you. Don't make any of your payments for three months and see what happens, okay? You have a master, and they can do something to you. Very, very similar in this. We need to understand that. You are now, I am now, a willing indentured servant, a slave. In fact, Proverbs specifically says that the borrower is the slave to the lender. Proverbs is not saying don't borrow money. Proverbs is saying be wise in how you manage your debt and what you're willing to do. And finally, there was a third reason. You could choose indentured servitude, slavery, over going to prison. So you'd work for the person that you'd wronged for up to six years. There was actually a limit. You could only do this for six years, but then the law actually provided that the slave would be freed and given some money when they left. So those are the three reasons that they would do that. As I said, this section also clearly states that you could never uh, kidnap or otherwise take a person by force to be a slave. This prohibition by God was actually unique among all ancient law codes. It's the only law code that had provisions uh, like this. And we find uh, also in this chapter that you cannot harm a slave in any way, including homicide. Or any other form of maltreatment, God would be angry about that. Again, the Torah was the only uh, ancient legal code to have these restrictions. And most people say the reason is because of what they came out of. They came out of that kind of situation in Egypt, so the Exodus. Uh, These first 21 verses help remind us that um, God is all about the idea of loving people and using things instead of what we so often do, which is use people and love things. That's a problem. Um, Here's the second thing. Let me read verses 22 through 25 of chapter 21. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Talking about a fetus here. And about how God protects the fetus in these situations. Don't harm a fetus because it's a human being. Okay? Now, let me just say again... We're going to talk a little bit about abortion because I think people need to hear some of these things about this, okay? But, but again, let me just say, I've never had anybody in my immediate family experience an abortion or go through an abortion, but I know a ton of people who have. And I've, I've been with them in the wake of this. I've even been with some in the midst of them wrestling with this. And the, the thing that troubles me the most is the way this issue is portrayed in the media is, is that there's this idea that the, the, the pro-choice crowd are filled with animus, some of them are, but they're all filled with animus, and this is a distinct right. and they celebrate the idea that they get to practice this right. And we've even had entertainers come forward now and say, I'd like to get pregnant just so that I can have an abortion, so that I can stand with my sisters who have had an abortion in solidarity. The experience I've had with people who have had abortions is nothing like that. They wrestled with the ethical and the moral issue of it. Even people who don't believe in God, people who don't believe in Jesus, they wrestled with this. This was hard for them. This wasn't about them standing on their rights. This was a real-life conundrum for them. And then in the wake of it, just experiencing all the anguish that so many of them have and, and the feelings of guilt and shame and did they make the right decision and maybe I would have done it differently, it's just not like it's portrayed in the media. This is a very difficult thing. And we've had millions and millions of these abortions. It's a really, really hard thing. But God is a protector of fetuses. God is pro-life. And he believes that abortion is wrong. And We see that throughout uh, other areas of the Old Testament as well. And it's interesting how recently in the last five to ten years how this argument has changed. I remember years ago when I first started listening to Tom Schrader teach Bible, and and this is in the early 90s, and he would say, you realize that sooner or later the pro-choice crowd is going to lose the biology argument. The biology argument is that it's really not a human being until at least six months, and so we have the right to, it's just a clump of tissues before it's six months, and so we have the right to do this. And eventually they did. They've lost the biological argument. They now somebody who is pro-abortion will willingly admit, yes, that is a human being at conception. They will admit that. But they've moved the goalposts and they've changed how they're going to argue and define things. So here it is now. They are appealing now to something called personhood theory. Anybody heard of this? Personhood theory. Okay. It's not a question of whether or not that, that fetus is a human being. We acknowledge that it's a human being, but it's not a person yet and and until it's a person we have the right to do with it whatever we want and and what that's done now is that has allowed us to argue for late-term abortions partial birth abortions and here you go there is a an ivy league professor who is now arguing that personhood really doesn't take place until the age of two or three and so we have the right to murder babies as well he doesn't use the word murder of course but we have the right to do it to babies now as well well, well, think about that argument. When does a person become person? I submit that you're not a person until you can do algebra. How about that? D- do you see how goofy this is? I mean, it's just, and I know some of you, like, that's a straw man. No, go and look this stuff up. It's not a straw man. This, these are legitimate conversations that, that very serious people are having. And here you go. This, uh, but, but I'm one of the oldest people in this room, y'all. So this applies to me now. If you can do this at this end of life, What are we now going to do at this end of life? I'm 60 years old, okay? Some people are even telling me, you quit becoming a person at 55, Frank. Here we go, okay? You see how that works? This whole thing becomes so arbitrary and subjective. And God comes along and says, I'm pro-life. There's a purpose, even when it doesn't look like there's a purpose. There is a purpose there. Even if that purpose is just to honor and glorify me. I I had written in my notes, the Bible is very concerned about life. No, God is very concerned about life. He's very concerned about life. And again, I am not discounting the anguish and the trouble that people who have gone through this have had. Let me tell you something. There's stuff in my past I don't want people talking about, and I feel convicted when people talk about stuff in my past as well. Here's what you need to remember. My past, your past, whatever you've done. And even yes, because the grace of God is so complete and full. And what Jesus did on the cross is so comprehensive. You need to understand that your past, my past, and your future, my future, already paid for at the cross. None of this is the unforgivable sin. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. But you need Jesus. Just like I need Jesus for all of the sins that I have committed and probably will commit that some people might think are unforgivable. Jesus forgives it all, every last one of them. That's why we need Christ and his redemption on the cross. Verses 28 through 36, the rest of chapter 21, deals with laws about oxen and pits. And we're talking about pits you fall into, not pits from the middle of fruit. And I'm going to skip those verses and let you dive into those verses in your RCs because I know that'll be a lot of fun for a lot of you, okay? But I want to end with this. Uh, There is talk of redemption in these sections on slavery. How do you get redeemed out of the slavery that you're in? How do you get redeemed out of your employment contract, your debt, those kinds of things? How is a person released from this economic prison? Your debt gets paid. It's that simple. There's a ransom, so to speak, for you. Have you ever thought about how much the New Testament talks about the redemption that Christ has for us? The fact that we are redeemed. Our, the name of our church is redemption, as a matter of fact. Okay? Jesus paid the ransom. He paid the debt that we have to God. And what is it that Christ has redeemed us from? What is it that he is in the process of redeeming us from? It is, in fact, a type of slavery. It's the mastery that sin has over every one of us in this room. Jesus and Paul and everyone else in the New Testament didn't just come up with this. This is rooted in the Old Testament. And even in the context of a workable but flawed economic system, the ideal is always that people are going to be redeemed. Always, always, always. Slavery is a problem even in the context of a workable economic model. But the greatest slavery ever perpetrated was Satan's deception for us to be oppressed by our own sin. The mastery that our sin has over us. Jesus hanging on the cross makes that one and only redemption payment that you and I so desperately need for everything. Now you may not be able to apply Jesus to every little nook and cranny of your circumstantial life. I get that. That's for God's wisdom to help you with. I hope you understand that. But the one thing that you can't have anything else applied to your life, and that is this redemption from our sin, only Jesus can do that for you. You need to come to Jesus. And those of us who already know Jesus, we need to be reminded of that glorious salvation and redemption that we already have. Now, Let's be honest. Let me come back to the Ten Commandments and say this. The Ten Commandments really isn't much of a bargain for sinners, is it? How many of you have been keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly and the additional 613 laws that we're going to look at next week? We're going to cover all 613 laws next week, by the way. Bring a lunch. I'm kidding. It'll be a flyover. Anybody covered those perfectly? No, of course not. In fact, Thinking about these Ten Commandments tends to make us bristle a little bit. It's impossible. God is an impossible taskmaster. No. That's the point of making us bristle. It's helping us understand that you and I desperately need an intervention by the only one who could do it, and that was Jesus. The perfect sacrificial lamb who said, it is finished, and he ended all sacrifice for sin. That's why we come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, man, challenging, challenging stuff today. God, here's my prayer today. That again, the Holy Spirit of God, your spirit would be used to allow this message to land in the correct and appropriate way for everybody your word is true your word is love your word is grace your word is wisdom your word is discipline we need to count on that and allow that uh, to be the truth that that guards us as we wrestle with these very challenging things help us to do that by the power of your spirit by the filling of the resurrected christ in us